0: This is the Startup Pregnant Podcast, episode number two. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. This podcast is sponsored by Meet Edgar, a social media scheduling tool. With Edgar, you only have to create content once and he does the hard work for you, making your content go further. As a busy parent and an entrepreneur, I don't have 10 hours a week to do social media scheduling. Who has 10 hours a week for that? To try it out for two weeks for free, go to ed.gr slash startup pregnant and get access to a free trial. You will be in love with them as soon as you realize just exactly what Edgar does for you. This podcast is made possible by sponsors like you. Consider supporting this podcast with a monthly donation on our Patreon page. Head to patreon.com/slash startup pregnant. We've got folks who we call our coffee friends who donate the equivalent of a cup of coffee each month to make this show possible. And we're backed by companies we believe in that can help make the lives of busy entrepreneurs and parents a little bit easier easier. If you want to become one of our company sponsors, head to startuppregnant.com slash podcast and get in touch. So in today's episode, we get to interview Annie Dean. Annie Dean is a co-founder and co-CEO of Work, W-E-R-K. And it's a company whose mission is to create flexibility for its employees. I think their homepage says it all. Their tagline says, work is not working for women. One of the other phrases I really love on their website says, the future of feminism is flexible. I love this. We're going to talk a lot about this in the show. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Annie. Annie describes herself as a recovering corporate real estate attorney. She spent six years in big law. She closed billions of dollars in real estate deals, and then she got pregnant. And as she'll talk about in the show... Her experience with maternity leave and making work and her family fit together was a pretty rough experience. She is a mother of two living in New York City, and she launched a brand new company focused on changing the paradigm of work with her co-founder and co-CEO. Today in our interview, we're going to talk about some of the insane things she had to do for work while she was pregnant and the very real pressure that she faced, why she quit big law to start a company, the real problems with the way work is designed, and what they've come up with to fix it, and why she started this company. We're going to talk about how being a co-CEO works, and we are going to address why working harder doesn't work and won't work for women going forward, why we've got to be smarter and do work differently. So let's get started. On to the episode. All right, Annie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. So first, can you start by telling me a little bit about how and when you started your company work?
1: Yes. So I spent six years prior to founding work, working as a corporate attorney in real estate. I was doing multi-billion dollar transactions representing institutional lenders. And I have always been that person who is very, very serious and committed to my career. And I had this experience that I think is unfortunately representative of the way a lot of women are treated in these corporate environments after I had my first son, I was 27 years old. And in New York City, I felt like Juno or teen mom. And it was just something that I was really adjusting to as a person. And I don't think that the department really had a sense for how to handle me. They openly questioned my commitment. They did things like asking me to stay overnight, 36 weeks pregnant. That was a request that landed me in the hospital. No. Um, Yeah. And I mean, I think that I still thought that it was all my fault that I couldn't do more. And so when I came back to work after, you know, returning from maternity leave, I had this experience where I was working 16 hours a day. I was doing that multiple days in a row. Days would go by where I wouldn't see my child during waking hours and I still felt like it was my fault if I couldn't advance the deal or if I couldn't be a perfect parent. And I was putting so much pressure on myself that at a certain point, I realized that what was being asked of me was not physically, emotionally, or mentally possible. It was just not within the realm of what is doable. And that the fact that I even viewed that as an objective was unfair and was going to cause me to fail long-term. And so I started thinking about myself in the context of all the other women who I knew were facing this and who frankly hadn't yet built a vocabulary to talk about it. And I had always been sort of the warrior of my group of friends. Like if she can't handle it, who can? And I felt like there had to be millions of other women who were experiencing exactly what I was experiencing. And that instead of sticking it out, like I was doing, they were going to quit. And I thought about that at a macroeconomic level and what that meant for our opportunity to reach positions of leadership and what that means for setting policy that ultimately honors women's needs and objectives. So it felt like a really broken, broken cycle to me. And the best part of it was that it felt very solvable Mm -hmm. because if the environment could have just changed to understand who I was and empowered me to say what I needed, then it would have been a very, very different outcome.
0: I think what you're saying is so, so important. Even the most talented, ambitious, and privileged people, the people who are out there with all of the opportunities in front of them are still finding this such an impossible scenario.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, when we first were building the concept for the business, we had this instinct, my co-founder and I, that it had to do with flexibility. And like I just said, sort of empowering women to build workplaces that reflect women's needs and objectives. But when we looked out into common knowledge and To, you know, popular culture and media about why women weren't reaching leadership positions and why women were sort of being forced to opt out, the story was very consistent. It was putting the onus completely on the woman. The Mm -hmm. women don't know how to negotiate. They don't know how to speak loud enough. They don't have sufficient internal mentors. And nobody was acknowledging the fact that there's no loudness that we can assert into the conversation if the rules are stacked against us. Mm -hmm. And so when building work, we really set to break the rules.
0: Wow. So tell us a little bit about what work is and what you have done in response to this situation. So we realized that 30% of the most talented women
1: are dropping out of the workforce, and that 70% of those women say they'd still be working if they had access to flexibility. And that was our key data point that led us to really have the confidence to define what flexibility means. And so in its truest form, or in its most basic form, work is a marketplace of flexible work opportunities for ambitious women. And what we did is we created a standardized definition for what flexibility really means and tried to eliminate the bias or inefficiencies in negotiating for flexibility during the job search. And I think our ultimate goal is to really make strategic workplace flexibility a concept that every person in America believes in, Mm -hmm. that every company in the United States adopts. And also, the secondary goal is to create equal representation for women in leadership, because women are being forced to opt out of the workforce because the structure of work is a relic of the post-industrial era. And without updating the workforce to modernize for the needs of the modern family, there's no way to create equal representation for women in leadership.
0: It's so true. It's a broken model that we're trying to fit ourselves within, both men and women, but largely that affects women. And instead of saying, well, let's step back and look at this model and see if these things like working from nine to five, working in an office, working a fixed number of hours, working for a salary, are those the things we're really wedded to as a structure? You're saying that, wait a 2nd this is a broken model. Let's do something else about it. So, can you back up a second and and one of the things that's I think right on the front of your website is the quote, "Flexibility is the future of feminism." Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about what that means to you and what is flexibility and how did you define flexibility?
1: So, One of the interesting things when we started down the path of flexibility is we realized that truly nobody understood what it meant and there was no definition. So if you go to the dictionary today, there is no definition of workplace flexibility. There's no Mm. definition of flexibility that it all relates to work. And we thought that was shocking because the data says that this is literally the most important thing to women employees, but nobody has taken the time or or devoted the resources to really create standardization or meaning around it. Mm-hmm. So in its simplest sense, we realize that flexibility is modifications on a full-time role to increase the compatibility of the objectives of the employer and the needs of the employee. And I think it's really important to view flexibility as a corollary to compatibility. Because think of me as that associate sitting in my law firm desk, my job was fundamentally incompatible with my life. And because of that, there was no investment that I could make in that job or in myself to eliminate the waste that was occurring. And so when we think about creating compatibility, what we're really making is a sustainable work culture where people can work at their highest levels of performance over the long term. Because if it's compatible, it means that you're able to recharge. It means that you're able to see your family. It means that you're able to sleep. And those are the things that really are most impactful on productivity. Hmm. So we took that definition just generally, and then we productized it by creating a framework and the Flexiverse is what you see on our website today. So, in the real world out there, no job description talks about the structure of the role. And in our job description, every single opportunity leads front and center with the type of flexibility that is approved for that job. And we simplify that by creating six types of flexibility and making sure that every single job description has at least one type.
0: Okay, so before we get into those types of flexibility, I want to back up a second and unpack that definition you just gave. I think what you're saying is it's about workplace fit between the employer and the employee. It's like quite simply, does it match? Like somebody's offering, say, a nine to five, but there is a mother who has to pick up her kid at four. Does that mean she's not able to work from nine to four because she can't stay that extra hour?
1: Exactly. And obviously the definition was born out of a more extreme circumstance. I think it's easiest sometimes to get meaning from the from the sort of polarized view of it but if you are expecting a working mother to arrive at the office and send 16 hours to 18 hours per day at the office when do you expect her to participate in taking care of herself or the others that she's responsible for yeah. and that's what i mean by a fundamentally incompatible fit and when you ask somebody to do something that is not sustainable for them it just leads to failure And that's what we're seeing at epidemic proportion. There is no fit and people are being forced to opt out.
0: Not by their own desire or choice. It's not like they are choosing, hey, you know what? I'd really like to be a stay-at-home mom. There's nothing wrong with being a stay-at-home mom. Stay-at-home moms are amazing, but there are people who want to work who aren't able to match. So tell us about what some of the response has been to the organization that you built.
1: Well, it's interesting, because even saying that, you know, it's not a choice, I think that some people can't understand that women want to work. Still, they believe that people who are opting out of the workforce are making that choice, because that's what they want. And when in fact, the data says something totally different. (sighs) Uh, Of course, a large portion of women would like to be full time caregivers, and they should be applauded in their opportunity to make that choice as well. So what do people say? I mean, I like to tell this story that, When we learned that the New York Times was going to be featuring our business in correlation with our launch, we were obviously over the moon, excited about the opportunity. And you just march towards these goals. you know. It's like, okay, the New York Times piece is coming out. We're organizing ourselves in this way, and we're doing this initiative. And then I remember it was five o'clock in the morning, and I knew that the piece was going to launch. And I saw that it was front and center on the homepage of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, what have we done? <laughs> we, you know, we had this idea about how we could fix our own lives and fix the lives of other women. And now we are on the front page of the New York Times. We've just thrown ourselves completely to the wolves. And in fact, we did. I mean, if you look at that piece, it is the most commented piece in that series ever. Mm-hmm. And the backlash ranges from saying that That women should not be working, that they should not pursue caregiving and career simultaneously, all the way to the liberal backlash, which is to say that because we are white women, Anna and I, that we don't have an intersectional viewpoint and that we don't believe that we should be supporting racial minorities, which is just as hurtful, frankly, because that's not our viewpoint at all. And we work hard to fight against that. And so when we had that piece, we recognized that flexibility was much, much more controversial than we ever anticipated. It's frankly controversial across both sexes, women Mm -hmm. and men find it controversial. And I think it's because one, it's not comfortable to do something new, but two, it's not comfortable to have women suggest that we do something new and feeling that gender bias and knowing that that's what we have to fight against is a real part of sort of the mental armor that we need to prepare ourselves every day as we know that we're going to bat for ourselves, our company, but also for all of the women and people that we can create opportunities for in the future. So we really try to just discard the unhelpful information. You know, we want to feel the pulse. We want to know what people are angry about. And we want to know what disturbs people about the idea that women can be working and raising children simultaneously, because frankly, it's a psychological burden that we have to overcome. Yeah. Um, But we don't take it personally.
0: I was reading the comments on the New York Times post, and I try not to read the comments on everything that gets out there because it can (laughs) really take you somewhere else. But I was so upset. Yeah. Because it was such an amazing article that talked about like why flexibility is so important and how to design the true modern workday, like what the future of work can look like. And yet there was so much backlash. So my question for you is, how do you deal with The fact that your job isn't just about the company that you're building, but it's also about changing the narrative and changing the stories and changing the culture that we're in. How do you take that on? Do you have any both positive stories and also like, oh, I tried this and it didn't work? (laughs)
1: Yeah. I mean, this is the part of the job I'm the most excited about because I'm really interested as a person in changing the hearts and minds of other people to create more opportunity for others. And I think there is an incredible story to be told here about what the modern woman actually looks like. You know, I read stories to my son at night and I always joke there's this one book called Mama Llama. And (laughs) in the book, Mama Llama washes dishes and she responds to her child screaming in his bed. And then she's on the phone with her friend and she gets interrupted. And I always have to ad lib it. I'm like, Mama Llama is washing the dishes after returning from a long day at her law firm. (laughs) And then the partner calls her To talk about the brief that she just submitted to the Supreme Court. And, you know, and it's funny because we don't realize how embedded these ideas of women's second classness is in the lives that we live, in the lives that our children live. And I think that once you have an eye to it, you really begin to see it everywhere. And I'm inspired by that. It doesn't upset me or make me feel discouraged. Mm -hmm. I look at it as an opportunity to make my own narrative. And I think that all of us together need to collectively embrace the opportunity to make that narrative. That said, you know, we recently were in a piece in Forbes and they posted it on their Facebook wall. And there were these commenters saying, they just want more, they just want more privileges. And the next person says, who's they? And the guy's like, the skirt's the skirts want more. And it's just like, it's, it's disgusting, honestly. And it's really upsetting. And, you know, this type of attitude is playing out everywhere. And the fact that people are so brazen about it means that, They really believe it. But like I said, that doesn't bother me. I actually find it to be a huge opportunity. And when we think about the business that we want to build, and by the way, we want to be founders that build a billion dollar business as women. We want to raise enormous amounts of capital and control the funding environment to show that women can build better businesses and that they should be invested in you know, we know that there's white space, because if this was easy, it would already be done. And we're totally comfortable being trailblazers. I think our generation of women needs to be comfortable being trailblazers, because that's what we owe the women who come
0: after us. A thousand percent, a thousand percent. So what's on the near term and ambitious long term agenda for work? Like, what are your goals for the next year, two years, five years, 10 years?
1: Yeah, so I think we want to make strategic workplace flexibility a concept that every person in America believes in. And that is a huge lofty goal. And we have a lot of ways to do it that have to do with building narrative and building brand and really leveraging all of the places that we can speak about this, but also creating an exceptionally smart technical product that is really in development now that will allow this business to grow to the place where it is a billion dollar IPO.
0: And this is, you're talking specifically about the service where you match people who want flexible work with employers that are posting jobs on this job board. Is that correct? That's
1: right. And that's the first place where we are. And I think that there's a really big product vision for
0: what we will ultimately be. Hmm. Oh, I can't wait to hear about that. Are you (laughs) can you share any of it? Or is it still like in under wraps? But I think, you
1: know, over the course of the next year, we'll start to be making that strategy more public.
0: Okay. So I have a couple more questions for you. The first, what does your workday look like? Do you break in flexibility, flexibility or like, how do you work in your office? How big is your team? Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So flexibility is part of our DNA, obviously. Right. And I actually have a great, very manageable life, which is amazing to say as a startup CEO. One of the most important things is my partner, Anna, and I are a partnership of the stars, we are like just so lucky to have each other. And the thing that's really amazing about us is that we're very, very similar, but have extremely different viewpoints. So we're constantly challenging each other, but we also care so deeply about each other that we're always in a very supportive relationship. And so we job share the role of CEO Anytime Mm. that we need to deploy the other one to handle something while one of us takes on a family need or one of us is traveling or on vacation, you know, we have a perfect proxy in each other. And we also empower each other to design the lives that we need. So in general, we both do drop off for our children. We're both at the office around 930. We both leave the office at around 5:30, spend time with our families, and then we generally work from about 8 to 11, 8 to midnight, depends on the day. We generally do not work on weekends except when it's really needed, and that really gives us the opportunity to work as hard as it takes to be a startup CEO, but, you know, on terms that truly feel stable. And, you know, some of our hacks are that we travel a lot, but we tend to just travel for one day, we don't sleep over so that we can always be home and start the next day fresh. Our office is now 10 people. Mm-hmm. We have really invested in making people feel comfortable. Our office is beautiful. We spent the time to really buy nice furniture and make it feel like it's nicely designed so that people can feel inspired coming to work every day. And we empower our employees to have the type of flexibility they need. And that changes all the time. So, for instance, one of the things that my husband and I really like to do to refresh is we both. Are obsessed with work. We love working and it can be really hard for us to pull ourselves away. So, even to go on vacation, because we just don't even make the time to think about when vacation might come around. But what we love every year is we rent a house in the Hamptons and we sit by the beach. We go to the beach four times a day with the kids Mm -hmm. and it's just perfectly our speed. And so, this month we rented a house and I sat down with Anna and I was like, look, I really want to make the most of the financial investment we've made in this house rental and I really want to spend as much time as I can with my kids and my husband so that I can sustain myself through our next busy period and the next time I forget to plan a vacation. This is when I'm happiest. And so I wanna make an investment in this where I'm gonna take every Friday in June off and I've reallocated those hours with my caregiver so that she's going to stay until 7pm each night. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to stay at the office two hours later every day. And I'm going to do a long check-in with our team on Thursday evening and then a secondary check-in on Sunday evening. And I think that that's how I'll feel most comfortable this month. And everybody communicated about it, was on board, and I'm empowered to make the decisions I need to really refresh myself.
0: Wow. 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 That's amazing. So how do you do the the longer rhythm of work? Do you guys have um, built in like staff development days or vacation time where you all take vacation together? Maybe this is still very new because you're a young startup, but what is the future of the longer rhythm look like?
1: Yeah. And I think that's a great question. And a question that women ask related to teams, because we always talk about the fact that women have more trouble raising capital, but a better advantage when it comes to team building and retention. So we think very seriously about this. We actually already work with a leadership consultant who helps us create sort of a common language for total transparency and feedback. I think the team operates very much like a family in that everybody is very respectful of one another and cares very much for each other, but it's always professional first. So, we never cross that line of being unprofessional or too casual or too intimate with one another. And I think that's the type of environment that people really thrive in. And it's something that takes a long term investment. That said, right now we're strategic planning for the next 12 to 18 months. And in order to really come together as a team and to get the best ideas, you know, we go off site for a half a day or we break things up into meetings that are fun, maybe we work hard all day. And then at five o'clock, we all meet for a drink and go home at six o'clock. But we're not keeping people at the office having a drink until nine o'clock. You know what I mean? I think it's really important to us that we fit all of our office objectives within very reasonable hours so that people have the flexibility to design their own lives outside of that period of time.
0: So one of the things that you have, you said it's a proprietary model on your mm. website is called the Flexiverse and it's yes. six or seven different types of flexibility. Can you walk us through some of those?
1: Absolutely. So when we came to that idea about standardizing flexibility, we realized that there was a framework in which, you know, you really had to commit to. So there was only so many different ways that you could create flexibility. And some of them are things that you'd recognize, but that hadn't been fully monetized yet. So the idea of remote work, for instance, we wanted to avoid the old relationship with terms like telecommuting, because today there are fully distributed workforces where every single person in the environment is remote. So you know, for us, it takes on an even more modern meaning. For part-time, again, something you've heard of, But in order to qualify for part-time in our Flexiverse, it also needs to be leadership track oriented. So this can't be a part-time job where the company stops investing in you. It just needs to be a reallocation of scope for a period of time. Then there are some things that are familiar, but named differently. One of them is Desk Plus, which is a partially office-based role. And that means that you would agree in advance that a percentage of your time will be spent in an office and a percentage of your time will be spent outside an office. That could mean from home, from the coffee shop, from a co-working space near your home. But it gives you the opportunity to step outside, get refreshed, feel more innovation than just logging your hours at a same office where people are sort of unintentionally pulling at your time with meetings and small talk and things like that. Another is time shift. And time shift is sort of standardly unconventional hours, meaning that you have a set schedule, but it's an unconventional schedule. Perhaps you're a commuter who wants to work from eight to three. And that means that you're able to take advantage of cheaper commuting prices and less busy commuting time. But you make up those hours that shave off after you eat dinner. And if you have children, the children head to bed. And then what are we missing? Micro agility is my favorite. I think it's the most innovative. And it's the idea that you can make micro adjustments to your schedule, no questions asked. Hmm. So I think today we constantly apologize for the existence of our personal life, which is ridiculous. And, you know, if you are not feeling well, or thing I think about all the time is, if I'm up all night with my children, because one of them has come home with a virus, and then starts crying, and then the other one starts crying, I cannot perform at nine o'clock in the morning. It's just not possible. Right. And right. so I send a message to my team and I say, I will be in at 11. I don't need to explain it. I just need to communicate. And everybody is respectful of that. And I can prioritize my own self-worth and self-awareness. And then the last one is travel light. So if the job is less than 10% travel, you can have a travel light type of position mm-hmm. on our website. And I think mm-hmm. that's particularly important to people who have spent a lot of time traveling and really want to be in a home base for a period of their career.
0: So I want to pause for a second and just and just acknowledge the fact that this collection of different types of work arrangements in their individual pieces aren't necessarily mm-hmm. radical things, right? Like, right. There are people who have been doing this 40 years ago where they go right. into work. My father worked from 6 a.m. till 2 p.m. So he was always home with us after school. I didn't realize that was revolutionary, but this has been around. Right. Working remotely, starting to become a lot more popular. What's radical to me is the idea that this is radical. Right. <laughs> that people think this is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, this right. can't be done. It has to look like this other thing. Where do you think that cultural bias and kind of fear comes from. Because at the end of the day, there's what I'm noticing across all the comments and the pushback that people seem to give ideas like this, which it's shifting a work schedule, an hour, or it's letting people say, hey, I'm going to make up these two hours tonight. What I wonder is, so what I'm noticing is that people are either afraid or they say some version of it's not fair.
1: Yeah. And I think what's radical to me is that in all of its previous iterations, it has not been viewed as a strategic advantage for the company. And in fact, it is extremely strategic. It is the lowest cost, highest impact way to keep women in the workforce. And it obviously, you know, we focus on women because women fail without flexibility, but it optimizes and makes other types of employees happier and more productive and less likely to leave. Okay, wait,
0: tell me all about this, because this, I think, is such an important argument that we gloss over. Please go into it
1: to date, if you ask for flexibility at a company, the company says, Oh, sure, you have Oh, you want to be a mom? Okay, we'll do this as a personal favor for you. We get it. You know, moms can't handle that much. I'm being facetious. Yeah, but yeah. but that's the tonality. but it's
0: also kind of true.
1: Exactly. And so today, we're saying that viewpoint is utterly and completely wrong. And if you are serious about creating gender diversity in the workforce, you need to optimize the structure in a strategic way and implement it strategically, measure its effectiveness, measure its implementation, and make it standardized. Because you are really disadvantaging yourself and you're going to lose the war for talent. And all of the Fortune 500 companies are thinking intensely about the war for talent right now, especially as we look at work trends moving forward. And many different types of jobs will continue to be automated and achieved through AI and robotics what is going to be left is you know, the thinking jobs and Mm -hmm. the people who are the most talented, most effective employees. And companies need to figure out a way to retain and accommodate them. We always say that if leadership teams are not gender diverse from VP all the way up to the board of directors, then you have a gender diversity problem. And if you don't make flexibility a key strategic component to that diversity solution, you are going to fail. And it's again, going back to the thing that you said very early on, which is actually something that we think about all the time. We cannot make women fit the world. We need to make the world fit women. What that means is a structural shift in what we view as strategic. And so flexibility is not a office perk. It's not free cereal. It's a key strategic advantage for companies who are serious about having a sustainable, uncontestable, competitive advantage.
0: Right. So you're looking to increase your management. You're looking to increase your profits. You're looking to build a better employee workforce. All of these things, all of these goals. Well, here's a solution for you. You have 50% of the population is female. Would you rather, right? Would you rather spend $100,000 or more trying to recruit the best management person or offer a shift in a schedule? to get right. the person, right? Like once you start thinking of it that way, you realize it's like, mind blown. <laughs> right. This is something that is not actually that radical. In fact, people are already doing it. And if you wait to do something like this, if you fail to see the ship that is leaving the dock, you're gonna be left behind.
1: Exactly. And you know, we think of flexibility as a new type of currency. And we encourage people who, employees, women employees who work at companies that don't take that currency to take their money elsewhere.
0: Hmm. Wow. Powerful statement. So I have two more questions for you because I can't leave them off the table. And it's about men. And then it's about women who aren't in the knowledge industry, the information industry, the tech industry. Like, What about service workers? Let's start with them. How does this affect them?
1: Yeah, this is really important. So in the service worker industry, the problems that we have seen through academic research have been more about stability than about flexibility. So we're seeing, you know, shift work being called 24 hours in advance. Yeah. We're seeing unpredictable schedules, unpredictable payroll, and inability to count on a certain level of revenue on a monthly basis. Those types of things, in my opinion, need governmental intervention. First of all, we need affordable childcare so that if we're going to keep these unpredictable schedules, that women are able to have a reliable and cost-effective place to have their children minded. So I think that in that case, it's not actually about flexibility because we're not talking about schedules that are meant to be, or, or in many cases, we're not talking about the 18 hour, the 20 hour consultant or attorney working at their desk all day. We're talking about an eight to 10 hour shift that is being called at the last minute. And that's just not fair. So, yeah. and, and I think the best way to solve that problem is through policy. And I think when it comes to flexibility, it's actually much harder to solve that through policy other than, again, a focus on affordable childcare, because women today who are utilizing flexibility, this is the inverse problem, need to have stability at home so that they can be reactive to the changing nature of their jobs and the complexities of their lives. And without the ability to afford childcare, that stability at home does not exist. Yeah. So it's sort of an inverse problem, but it is very, very important.
0: Thanks for addressing that. Because yeah. that's one of the uh, most pressingly like moral failings of the United States. One of the yeah. most embarrassing things that we have not going for us. And it's something I'm really passionate about and I'm always really grateful for people who think about it and address it and and acknowledge it. Okay. By the way, if we
1: get more with 19% of congressional seats are held by women, 22% of Senate seats are held by women. I believe that if we had more women in legislation, things like affordable childcare would not constantly be overlooked. rights of wage workers would not be constantly overlooked. Right. And that's just another incentive to get more women into leadership overall.
0: And this is a really interesting, and we won't wade too far into politics, but Anne-Marie Slaughter in her book, and I know she's an advisor of yours, one of the things she says is it's not a partisan issue necessarily. It's actually a gender issue because there are Republicans and Democrats on both sides advocating for this, but it's largely put forward by women. And it's just the inability to see what's not in front of you, what isn't there, that's the biggest harm. It's just literally not having women in the room. And it's a double consequence because it's not just the women, but it's the people the women represent. The children that they are taking care of, their rights, their needs, the support, the care, et cetera, and also the elderly people. So like women are like representing three people to everyone that a man is representing in the past models, although that is changing. Right. So I couldn't echo. We could go on and on about this in another conversation. But I want to address the last question, which is how does this affect men? So
1: men are a very, very important part of the solution. The reason why we talk to women today is because women are most disproportionately affected by a lack of access to flexibility. And just going back to something I said earlier, what that means is that our demographic of women are failing because of a lack of access to flexibility. Nobody else is failing at that rate. And so it's the most important that we advocate for women in this area. That said, every solution that's proposed that is a women's only solution or a solution that serves only a discrete minority is not a solution that has long term legs. And so we need to be as inclusive as possible about implementing flexibility. And in fact, in order for women to take advantage of flexibility and to take advantage of working in the workforce and moving to higher positions of leadership over time, You need gender equality at home. And I think we're moving to that as a society, but creating more opportunities for men to have flexibility is going to be a huge part of the overall success of flexibility long term.
0: Right, right. And something I think about a lot that I think is only just gaining legs and may take a third or fourth wave of awareness is that men want to be parents and fathers too. Many of them. Not all of them. We can't we can't summarize for an entire gender ever. And there's more than just men and women. There's all genders. But there are so many people that want to be fathers. And they some of the research I've been reading shows that men are penalized more for asking for flexibility. It's actually a huge taboo. Interesting. I, the research I see
1: actually has the opposite, that men tend to be rewarded. Yeah, rewarded for a flexibility, because every time that they show a commitment to family, it tends to be re- rewarded. And in women's cases, it tends to be a huge liability. And so obviously, we need to get to a better middle ground on that and yeah. have men be advocates for women and women be advocates for men. And I think that we should be talking about our families at work in a professional way. I think we should make the context of our lives known. You know, I have a special needs child. And it was scary for me to go back to work after my child was born. One, because I was still really in the middle of a medical crisis with him. But two is because I really didn't know how to manage other people's perceptions Mm -hmm. of this totally seismic change to my life. And I've realized this through continually through being a special needs mom, is that People just don't understand and you can just engage them in conversation and they will understand and be so empathetic and kind. And I think that at least in my former corporate life, you know, aside from having a special needs child, nobody even wanted to acknowledge that I had any children, even not a healthy child, not a a special needs child. So I think that by having really open lines and being honest about who we are, we really can change hearts and minds.
0: Okay, so I could talk to you for hours more, but being <laughs> being, being especially about that last one, we'll have to geek yeah. out on over email about what we're finding cuz it's very likely that yes and, right, is the truth. Yeah, totally. So, thank you so much. Where can people find you to find out more about you? So, check out
1: saywork.com. That's s a y w e r k.com and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we're at @work. We'd love to hear from you.
0: And what is one thing above all else that you would like people to take away with a changed heart or a changed mind from this? Don't
1: be afraid to say what you need because you don't have time to do
0: anything else. All right, well, that is a wrap. Thank you everybody for listening to the Startup Pregnant Podcast. And thank you to Annie Dean for being such a wonderful guest. Do us a favor and give us a review and a rating in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are a brand new show and your ratings and reviews help tremendously in getting the word out. And please hit subscribe. If you want to tell your friends about it, share our website, startuppregnant.com. I also want to give a huge thank you and shout out to our show sponsors, Aeroflow Breast Pumps taskerly, meet edgar, hippo give, fast rope labs and think clearly. You guys made this show possible. One of the reasons this podcast exists in the first place is because we put out a call for sponsorships and we were overwhelmed by the response that we got. If you want to back us, head to patreon.com/startuppregnant and become a sponsor. We have folks who contribute a few dollars a month to much more. And we would love to have your support. Our next goal is to back all of season two. So if you like what you hear, and you like the stories that we're sharing, and you think it's important that we build this, please, please leave a review on iTunes, hit subscribe, head over to our Patreon page. Basically, tell us that you want more of this and we will keep doing it. There are also all sorts of fun prizes and things you can get for backing at various levels of sponsorship. So if that's your jam, please do so and tell your friends about the show. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you on the next episode.